Let's pray as we proceed. Holy Spirit, we ask for a fresh sense of your presence. We ask for a fresh sense of your voice and your guidance and your love. Open your word to us in this time and help us to respond as you would have us do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's passage, of course, shows us the beginning of Holy Week, which it is for us, the week leading up to Jesus' suffering and death, after which he would rise on the third day. And it makes a very clear and direct statement about who Jesus is. But at the same time, how this truth is received, it varies greatly. And if I'm honest, you know, being in the church pretty much my whole life, there's kind of maybe in the back of my head, maybe not made explicitly, but kind of in the, in the background, there's kind of this tension of what to do with Palm Sunday. This, this triumphant and joyful scene at the beginning of Holy Week, because especially if you've been in church, especially if you were raised in the church, you know the trajectory of the week. You know how it ends. You know that, that the cross on Good Friday is just a few days away. And yet we have this joyful scene. And then, of course, next week is the joy of Easter. And so there's this kind of emotional roller coaster that is Holy Week when you look at it as a whole. And so what then are we to do with this revelation of Jesus as King on Palm Sunday? Well, the thing is, it, in order to really understand the statement of Palm Sunday, we have to look at the week as a whole. The week as a whole, how the week plays out, it only illuminates the statement being made in our passage. And it calls we who would follow him receive this truth for ourselves. What the passage is showing us is not subtle. Jesus procures someone else's colt to ride into Jerusalem for the week of Passover. And so on this, 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 this week where pilgrims are coming from all over to enter Jerusalem. And so there's a large crowd in Jerusalem during this time. And he does this. And what he's doing is, it's not made explicit in Luke, but it's very much put forward in other Gospels. And, it's very, and, and, and what's hanging in the background is a prophecy from Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This very much may have been in the heads of all the disciples as they celebrate as they take in this scene and celebrate it, praising God. Jesus had been to Jerusalem before, and this did not happen. And on this journey, he certainly doesn't need a colt to cover the last couple miles into Jerusalem. What he's doing is blatant. It's direct. And it's profound. 
And it's very much a statement about who he is. And they catch this. They catch this, this statement about him being Messiah and king, which is why they celebrate, which is why they worship, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They've seen his miracles, and they're praising God for them. And he's been showing people who he is through his miracles, through his teachings, through his work. But even at times, he's, he might do something quite profound, might heal someone quite profoundly, only to tell them not to tell anyone. And so it's there, but it's not always out in the open. Here it is out in the open with a great audience. We have this public and blatant display of who he is and his making his claim to be king. There may have been great anticipation with this, of course, even today. You know, after there's an election for an office like governor or president, there's always speculation. What are they going to do when they enter office? You know, we know what they said they were going to do. What are they going to do? What are they going to do first? How are they going to do it? You know, it doesn't even matter if we like them or not, there's always speculation. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What are they going to do? How much more the anticipation with these, these prophecies that, have, that they've and waited for, culminating in the, the Messiah and the King coming to Jerusalem, and finally, here it is, this direct statement. Well, what's he going to do? We have this King. How is he going to, to, to rule as King? What's going to happen next? And yet there's no indication. And, and as we look at the Gospels as a whole, we can say this all the more, there's no indication that anyone had any idea what was going to happen next. Except him. Even though he had spoken about it. And on Monday, Thursday, we'll look in more detail as how this kingship plays out in his passion. But here, no one seems to really be thinking about that or understand that it's coming. And so we see a couple of reactions to who he is. We, of course, have the crowd of disciples with this to who he is. We, of course, have the crowd of disciples with this, this joyful and worshipful reception. And rightfully so. This is good news that Jesus comes as king. They rightfully honor him, and they rightfully praise God for his work. But even among his closest disciples, even among the twelve, we know that they didn't get it completely. They didn't understand it completely. And we know what happens in just a few days. We know that when he's in when he's going through the toughest of things in his ministry, that they flee, that they are scared, one betrays him, one denies him. And then, of course, he's crucified because people called for his crucifixion perhaps considering him to be a false prophet, thinking there's no way he could be who he said he was as they behold him in the hands of the Romans. 
And even though Jesus had told them what was going to happen, they didn't understand it because many were expecting a very different king. Many were expecting a king that would come and conquer and vanquish their enemies, namely Rome, the Roman Empire, under which under whose shadow they continually lived. They wanted a king who would come and bring back the glory days of Israel and all the peace and prosperity and security that came with it. And that doesn't happen in this week. That's not what they see happen. Instead, the king that they hail, that they celebrate, is arrested He's beaten and he's given a criminal's death. And then we see the Pharisees. They tell him to silence his, his followers. And at times, we've seen them presented as Jesus' opponents. Sometimes they show that they respect him at least at a level of teacher, maybe even showing concern for him. We perhaps could argue that it is them who probably take the gravity of the situation more to heart because this request to silence his followers, sure, it may, it's likely they did not agree with his being hailed as king, but all the more so, they know the implications of this. And so when they say, teacher, silence your followers, it may be coming from a place Teachers silence them, the Romans might hear them. They know how the empire operates. They know that Rome did not tolerate anyone or anything that would interfere with their power. And to enforce that, they have a garrison right in Jerusalem, right next to the temple. The implications of this declaration of him to be king, it could be devastating. And even at the end of the week, we see that even though the Roman governor finds no charges to execute him, he executes him anyway, just to prevent a potential riot, just to keep the so-called peace. These misperceptions, this disconnect is at some level understandable because it's the way of the world. It's the way things are. It's how they've been conditioned. It's how we've been conditioned. This is how power works. When the Romans processed in this way, when they rode into a city being celebrated, it was usually after a successful military campaign, after the successful conquest, violent conquest of a people, usually. But Jesus is not doing that. Jesus is not entering Jerusalem on a war horse. He is riding on a lowly colt, a steed of peace. Even as, as we go back to the verse in Zechariah, when it tells us, when it gives us this image of him riding on the foal of a donkey, the very next verse, it speaks of him removing the chariots and bows of Israel and declaring peace to the nations. All the nations. 
The truth is, his identity as king, it's much bigger than anyone in this scene, aside from himself, recognizes. He is not an earthly conqueror that comes to vanquish our enemies. Nor is he an insurrectionist simply trying to replace one empire with another. He is king and ruler of all. And what does the king and ruler of all do with all that authority and all that power? What does he do as king? He serves. He heals. He frees. He suffers. And he dies. That's not easy to receive. That's not terribly appealing for many of what use is a king who comes to die. The truth is, he does conquer. But it is not the violent conquest of his enemies. He conquers by dying, even for his enemies. And in doing so, he conquers even death itself. The truth is, all the expectations present in this passage that are disconnected from who he really is and how his kingship plays out, those expectations are actually way too small. He is much, much bigger than his followers realize. So where do we stand? Now, if you were in Sunday school this morning, Bob and Betty were asking the question, where, where do you see yourself in this passage? It's a good question for any passage, but particularly this one. How do we respond when Jesus speaks to us, when he leads us? How do we see Jesus as king? And when he as king speaks and leads us in ways very different from our desires, from our interests, from the way of the world, from the way of the empires through the ages, what do we do? At the end of the passage, it's interesting. We have this celebration, this, this worshipful, joyful celebration. And at the end of the passage, he weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem. And he weeps about the siege and the destruction that would occur just a generation later. Saying, if you, even you, had known what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And when that actually comes, it comes because some would try to combat violent power with more violent power. And that would be put down violently by a Roman siege that would end horrifically, destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple as a result of many destructive human choices. And so Jerusalem is destroyed by Rome. And we fast forward and roll to other swords and so on and so forth. Another empire and then another one, usually replacing the one before it violently. 
through means of blood and death, and so on and so forth until today. And we can look around us and consider, are things so different? Do we know what would bring us peace? Have we still... Have we still not understood the rule of our king? We might shake our heads at the Pharisees. We might shake our heads at the misperceptions of his disciples. But how do we receive the way of this king? Because if this king who rules over all gives of himself in such a way that he forgives even those who take his life while they are taking it, what does that mean for those who would follow this king? It means he does not serve our self-interests or the interests of the empires of our world. He instead, he gives us a kingdom that calls us to die to ourselves. And yet somehow in doing so, we find life. He brings a kingdom that is good news. Not for some, but for all. Good news especially for the downtrodden, for the oppressed, for the suffering, for those who find themselves in the wake of all the destructive choices of humanity. He brings a kingdom that calls especially the comfortable and the powerful, to consider how our lives align with his kingdom. He brings a kingdom that calls us to repent from our destructive choices and instead to turn to God. And in doing so, find life. This is why the very next story is him driving out those who were selling in the temple courts. They were providing a legitimate service to worshipers. The problem was where they were doing it. They were in the temple courts, likely the court of the Gentiles, the only place the Gentiles were allowed, the only place where they could worship. And so this, he shows us that his, king, his, his kingship and his kingdom very much clashes with our desires when we elevate things like money or power above people or our worship of God. This is a king who does not allow us to seek our own interests, but instead calls us to turn from our sin and turn to God. But in doing so, the Lord draws us into his purposes, which are much, much bigger than ourselves and much, much bigger than our hopes and our dreams and our expectations. He calls us to a lifestyle that instead of perpetuating the cycles of violence and oppression and destruction that have plagued humanity throughout our timeline to answer the expressed through the love of neighbor, offering life to this world that is so often plagued by death. And when he says, if they keep silent, the rocks will cry out. He's telling them, this is true. Whether we declare it or not, 
It remains true. And that is very, very good news because Jesus is the way to peace, to salvation, to the wholeness of ourselves and our world. And it is his giving of himself at the end of the week that begins here, that allows us and our world to be reconciled to God and be free. Free from our sins so that we do not give ourselves and we do not give others to destructive desires or choices or anything less than what God Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Hold that. Ruminate on that. Celebrate that. Because it is very, very good news. Because of the kind of king that he is. And his kingdom moves forward today. And he brings us along with him as he moves it forward. Always with the hope of sin. And his is a kingdom that takes all that is wrong in us and in our world and makes it right. Let's continue worshiping our King.